So a few months ago, I was flying up to New York. Anybody travel on business at the 1230? Uh, no. Um, awesome. Uh, anybody in? Anybody have a job? Let's just start there, <laughs> bottom level. Okay, great. Anybody travel to and from work? All right, a few of you. Some of you work at home. Uh, I was flying to New York and to LaGuardia. Any LaGuardia flyers here? Okay, there you go. All the LaGuardia flyers know what's up. So it's, it could be wonderful. It could be the Statue of Liberty and all of Manhattan, or it could be the Outer Banks, and, or it could be a different approach altogether. But the weather is, is, is the variable going into LaGuardia when you're flying to New York. And it can be a little bit of anything there. And on this particular trip, it was incredibly socked in overcast. I don't know that it was raining, but it was really, really thick overcast. And so we're coming down and, you know, it's that time where we've all gotten ready to land. We've put our tray tables up. We have uh, given our, our, you know, cups back to the flight attendant. We've turned off all of our devices that we're on. And we have now prepared for our final approach and our landing. So everybody knows within moments we're going to actually be on the ground. But I was sitting by the window, left aisle window over here, uh, uh, whichever side of the plane that is. I was on the left side of the plane by the window, and I'm looking out. I see nothing, but I'm not worried about that because I sort of fly as a way of life, and I have confidence in, uh, in these guys that are up in the front or these guys, ladies, whoever's up there. I'm confident, so we're coming down. I'm okay with it. The lady behind me is losing her mind, and I don't mean that in a joking way. She was an elderly woman. I noticed her when she and her husband got on, sat behind, and she's saying, honey, 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 and, and I'm realizing what she's freaked out about. You can't see nothing, and we know now we're moments away from landing because we've done all the things that you do right before you land. And she's saying, I can't see anything. I can't see anything. I can't see anything. And it's all she's saying over and over. I can't see anything. I can't, how, how can they see anything? I can't see anything. And I mean, she's panicked, and, and I'm now feeling her panic and her pain, and I'm, I really am feeling it, and I wanna just turn around and say, ma'am, um, I fly like every week. This is going to work out. Uh, we're not going to smash into anything in just a little while. You know, I, but I know that saying that isn't going to change what she sees because she sees something very real to her. And so I'm just like holding on. I'm like, come on, come on, come on. Sooner or later, we got to break through. And finally, we break through the clouds. And we're not like four feet off the ground. We're maybe 1,500 feet. I don't know what we were at that point, but we're, we're high. We're still up in the air. We're not, you know, like two minutes away from, you know, being on the runway. We still got a little ways to go. And, and as soon as we break through the clouds, they're the neighborhoods and you, you've flown over the, the big cemetery and all this stuff coming through, you know, Queens and in the other side of Brooklyn. We're all coming in now. And, and she says, oh, I see it. It was the greatest moment of flying history for her because it didn't matter what everybody else saw, knew, or were experiencing in that moment of landing. The only thing that really mattered wasn't what the pilots saw or what they knew. It was what she saw and what she knew. And in that moment, she was like, oh, I see it. And I was like, hallelujah. You know, I mean, I might have actually said that. I don't remember, but I just had a lot of joy in that moment. And then and you could just feel the blood pressure going down because we had a little time still and it was like, oh, I see it now. Oh, I see it now. Oh, we're gonna, oh, this is how we're gonna land. We're gonna see it and then we're gonna land on it. I, oh, I see it. I see it. We got up to get off the plane. I wanted to hug her, bless her heart. I just wanted to say I'm so sorry that happened to you and that you didn't know ahead of time that a lot of times the visibility is really minimal 
And it's not until the last moment that you break through and see the ground. But you know, when you fly a lot, you know that. At least you trust that when you fly a lot. A few weeks ago, we had a little different version of that. We were flying into Atlanta, and they didn't come over the intercom to say, we're now landing. The pilot just turned around and said it right from his seat to us. And what he said was this, we were planning on going into X airport over here, but the visibility is too poor, and the fog is too low, so we either have two options here, and you don't want options from a pilot, by the way. This is not what you want. We can either you know, shoot the approach over here and just see what happens, or we can divert and go land over at this other airport in the metropolitan Atlanta area. And I just remember we were sitting there thinking, you're asking us whether we wanna do what? Shoot the approach? What is that? I don't know. That doesn't sound very good, you know? What? I don't even know what that is. We learn later what that means is, is that we fly down below the cloud layer, and when we break through the cloud layer, we make the most of the circumstance as quickly as we can and decide whether we can land or can't land, and if we can, we do, and if we, we can't, we pull off. Like, no, 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 let's don't do that. And so they finally let us know we're going to go to this other airport and it's going to be a little inconvenient because this whole day has really hinged on getting here. Your car's at that airport. You were thinking you were going to land, get in your car, go to do this other thing. But now we're not going to do that. We're going to go to this other airport over here. They don't have to figure everything out. And I'm like, That's fine. You just go wherever you can land. Let's do that. Let's just go wherever we can land. And I mean, as we were coming down this time, it wasn't the lady in the seat behind me, bless her heart. It was me in the seat that I was sitting in. And I'm thinking, man, we're getting lower and lower and lower, and I can actually see out the front windows of the plane from my seat, and there is nothing. (laughs) And here we come. And in that moment, I thought to myself, you know what we're doing right now? We are 100%, 1,000% banking on the validity, the veracity of the information that is on that instrument panel telling these two guys what our altitude is, what our speed is, where the runway is, and how far it is until we touch down on it. We are putting all of our confidence in that information. And this little phrase just went through my mind. We are flying into truth right now. We are not flying into sight We're definitely not flying into feelings. Oh, I feel fantastic about what's happening right now. How do you feel? Oh, wonderful. Let's do it. No, we are flying into truth. We're flying into information that is telling us that what we're doing is a good idea. And as we end this series for now, the comeback series, which I I don't know about you, but I'm like, let's just keep talking about comebacks every single week until Jesus comes back. And that'll be the final comeback talk in the comeback series. Let's just kind of keep rolling on that direction. But we've talked about how Jesus has power, that stories are still being written, that addiction does not have to be the end of your story. Cancer does not have to be the end of your story. Relationships blowing up 
that does not have to be the end of your story. Depression, in my case, anxiety, darkness, the holes that we fall in don't have to be the end of our stories. But as we, as we come to this resting place today in the series, what I really want to do is ask the question, what do we do when we cannot see where we're going? We can't see the ground beneath us. We celebrate that somebody else had a comeback story. That's awesome. And I really genuinely am happy for that person. But that's not where I am right now. When I'm looking out the front window of the plane, I can't see anything but the fog. I can't see anything but the clouds. I don't see anything that assures me that we're going to safely land this thing and get out of this plane and move on with our lives again, what do I do in a moment like that? And I wanna leave us today with a very simple idea, but a profound idea, and it is this. When we cannot see and we cannot feel, the only thing that will help us through our comeback is to understand, to believe, to realize that there is a cross in the middle of our comeback story. And if we can get our eyes on the cross of Christ, when we can't see a thing, we will find in that reality, in that truth, what we need to make it through when we can't see anything else but that cross. That's how powerful the cross of Christ is for you and me. And so I wanna just set our minds and our hearts around that place today. You know, when we say that, I know a lot of you are like, oh, the cross, I believe in the cross, I've heard of the cross, I, you know, that's wonderful, it's a great symbol of our Christian faith. But I want us to go there today because it's not an idea, it's a, it's a, a point in history. And I want us to get our eyes and our minds and our, our senses around the reality of what happened there. And I wanna let Mark do that in his gospel as he describes the last hours of the life of Jesus. And we're gonna begin reading in the first verse of Mark 15. It says, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him? But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. 
Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. If we can just take ourselves out of this place today and put ourselves in that place for a moment, in that place, then we can understand something real happened in history, something that would have pressed every one of us to the very limits of our faith and our hope, would have pressed us to, to the limit of our ability to even trust and believe in God 
in a moment like this. But yet then we fast forward to where we are today and with the lens of, of history, we look back at what happened there and we see now the power of God on display even in a moment like this. Because even as we read and as difficult as it is to, to think about what happened to Jesus, we're reading with that lens of redemption and that lens of sovereignty and that lens of how God was working above the circumstances, above the fog, if you will, God was at work doing something phenomenal for you and for me. And so when we come into a moment where our circumstances close in on us, oftentimes all we have to hold to and to cling to is this cross of Jesus. It is looming in history and it's looming in whatever circumstance you find yourself in today. And I wanna offer that to you as the place that your comeback begins, the place where your comeback is anchored today. There's a circumstance in our house not too many weeks ago that was so difficult. And as we walked into this situation with this family, there, 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 there was no simple statement. There was no, oh, well, I'm a pastor and, and we're pastors and we're here now, so let us just open up our case of wonder and let us quote, oh, which of the hundred of passages do we wanna say right now or which of the hundred little spiritual sayings do we wanna say right now in this moment, in this situation, in this family's life? It was darkness, it was war, it was light against uh, evil. It was all of the power of God against all the power of the darkness. And it looked like the blows were being landed more powerfully by the darkness than by the light. And it was real. And there wasn't an opportunity to roll in and just say, oh, well, let's just, you know, tack on some simple little spiritual saying and everybody will feel better. It was a moment where as you walked in, you thought, what is there to say in this moment? And in that moment, the thing that was said was, we want to encourage you, I want to encourage you to lock your gaze on a very real place in time, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Son of God gave his life fully for you and for me. And I want to encourage you to rivet your attention on that cross and to never stray away from it, because it is the anchor that's going to hold you when there's nothing else to say. It's going to say everything that God needs you to know. And in this moment, the cross is going to redefine your circumstances. We're not going to let these circumstances redefine the cross. Because it is big and it is real. And I want you to know today that in the middle of the wreckage, there's a cross. You know, on 9-11, when our heart collectively stopped as a nation, we could not imagine the destruction that happened within a few hours. And immediately it seemed like every able-bodied rescue worker within the greater New York area was on the scene of the Twin Towers collapse, trying to manage their way through the rubble to find a survivor. Two days later on the 13th, one of the workers there, working in Six World Trade Center, where wreckage had fallen from the North Tower, discovered an image that literally just somehow brought a tiny ray of hope to our whole country. 
It was an image that everyone remembers and can see in your mind. A 20-foot section of I-beams were lodged in the wreckage, probably most likely from the North Tower, they think, in the image of a cross in the middle of the wreckage. I think this image we all remember. In the middle of it all was a cross. And you can discount that a thousand different ways to coincidence and happenstance. But you cannot discount this reality today that in the middle of your divorce, in the middle of the abandonment, in the middle of the abuse, in the middle of the pain, the death, the cancer, the diagnosis, the darkness, the collapse, in the middle of whatever the enemy has brought your way, there stands a cross in the wreckage today. And if we can lock our gaze on it, it will save our lives and it will lead us through. Why? Because when you can't feel or see through the fog, you have to fly into the truth. And what is the truth? Well, there are a few things that the cross says emphatically to us in the middle of the fog. And the first one is this. The cross tells us that God is still there. The first thing we think when everything is shattered around us is, God, what happened? Where did you go? Did you just drop me off the end of the equation over here? Do you even know I exist? Am I still even on the radar of heaven? And the enemy comes so quickly into our world, doesn't he? He's like, man, you know what? It looks like God has sort of left the scene here and abandoned you altogether. It looks like God basically has said to you, good luck with this one, you're on your own. And we begin to believe that and we even repeat that back and we say, God, what happened? Do you still know who I am? Do you still care about me? Where did you go in this moment? These are the real things that we say when we get into these places that we cannot see the end of our fingers, much less how to take one step in front of us. But what we can see in that moment is a real thing called the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us, that he is Emmanuel in the middle of it all. Was God there the day that Jesus gave his life? Well, I would like to offer it was actually God who was giving his life on that day. So of course he was in the middle of it all on that day. It was Jesus and human, God in human flesh. Jesus, God in human flesh on that cross. God has never been closer to humanity than he was in that moment. God has never drawn more near to you or to me than he did in that moment. And even at the end of it all, Jesus said, Father, what happened? Where did you go? Why have you forsaken me? The, the, the Reasoning for this statement, the, the explanation of this, you know, theologically falls a lot of different places. It would certainly fall on one side that Jesus took on our sin. He took on our guilt. He took on our shame on his innocent body. All the guilt of humanity now rests and his innocent life came all of the guilt of you and me. And so in that moment as he suffered and died and paid the ultimate payment, 
The, the most ultimate price was that moment where God even turned away from his own son in the same way that he would have to turn away from you or turn away from me if we in our own lives bore all the full guilt and shame of our sin. And Jesus could handle the mocking and the accusation, the spitting, the beating, the crown of thorns, the nails, the ridicule of the people on his side, but what he, what he couldn't handle was when the Father had to look away from him. He had never known that from eternity past, and he'll never know it again from now into eternity future, but for one moment in time, there was the full weight of our sin on Christ. And he knew what it feels like to have his Father look away so that you and I could be connected to God and hear the promise of Jesus over our lives. I will never leave you or forsake you. But even in that moment, you say, well, this is what I feel like's happened. I feel like God has looked away from me or turned away from me. But I want to remind you that in that moment of the cross from morning until noon, until afternoon when Jesus died, there was never a moment God wasn't there. There was never a moment God wasn't weaving and working and orchestrating all those things. Even when they took his body and put it in Joseph's tomb and sealed it for the night. And even when Passover came and darkness fell and Jesus went into the depths of the earth, there was never a moment where God wasn't working the whole time and we know this when we keep our eyes on the cross and so when I say God are you there I look at the cross and I say this is the price you paid to draw near to me and to promise me that because of what Christ has done we will be linked together forever the second thing the cross says to you and to me when we can't see anything but the fog is it tells us that God still loves us and this is where the enemy cuts our legs out from under us. And most of us have thought the question, if we didn't ask the question, God, if you love me, why is all this happening? And we, we, we're afraid if we say that out loud, we're going to get our, our wrists slapped by the church police because it doesn't sound like things that good Christians would say. But in our hearts and in our minds, we're like, man, this is so horrific. This is so dark. This is so evil. This is so destructive, God. If you really love me, why is this happening to me? And the enemy comes right on the heels of He says, well, of course he doesn't love you. Why would God love you? I mean, look at you. There's nothing to be loved about you. Of course God doesn't care about you. Of course God, you know, doesn't love you. Of course you don't matter to God. Why would you matter to God? And we begin to process and onboard that kind of thinking. So now we're in a hole, and now in the hole we feel unloved by God. And the only way out of that fog is to fly into the truth of the cross of Christ and to go, I don't know anything today, and I don't know much about my circumstance today, but I know one thing today. I know there's a place where Jesus died, and when he died, it was the greatest act of love that God has ever shown to me. It was God telling me emphatically that he loves me. This is the way that Paul wrote it in Romans chapter five. He said, and God demonstrated his love for us in this way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how do I know that I'm loved? Because I do good. No, because I feel like it. No, because I'm having a great day. No, because my circumstances are awesome. No, that's not how I know that I'm loved by God. I know that I am loved by God because he gave his son 
for me when I did not deserve it. He expressed it fully, totally, completely, and utterly, amazingly to me. And this is how I know that I'm loved by God. So when I cannot see because of the fog, I set my gaze on the cross of Christ. And I know that because of that cross, God loves me. These circumstances are not amening that right now. But the cross is anthemming to me, even into the circumstance. You know, just go back there. You're standing there with me right now. You're looking up at that cross, and what are you thinking? Oh, a loving God is doing all this. That's not what you're thinking. You're not thinking this is an act of love. You're not thinking that his father loves him, whoever it is he's talking to up there. You're not thinking that that's a very loving father. But now we look back through the lens of history. We go, the most loving thing that's ever been done. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my heart and my soul and my all is what we sing now. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ere such love and sorrow meet? Nor thorns compose so rich a crown. The third thing that Cross tells us when we can't see anything else is that someone understands. You know, friends can console, notes can encourage. Calls can bring hope, but you still walk away, don't you? And you go, but nobody really, really knows what I'm feeling right now. And you can feel completely isolated by that reality because it's true. It's likely true that no other human being knows exactly what you're feeling in that moment. And it can so insulate you from the world and isolate you into a place where you feel so alone. But the cross breaks into that, doesn't it? And it says, no, they don't fully understand, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and their own suffering, they are leaning in in every way that they can. But I want you to know this, you're not alone. You're not the only one who fully, completely understands what's going on right now. I get it. I understand. Your Father understands and your Savior understands and the Spirit with them understands what it means to go through pain and suffering and loss and abuse and abandonment, they get it, they understand it, and they can relate to you. You are not alone in the middle of the fog. You gotta fly into the reality that God knows. And you gotta say that out loud. I know that you know. And the fact that you know and fully understand everything I'm feeling, everything I'm thinking, everything that I'm going through right now, it is my comfort in this moment. The cross, the fourth thing, tells us that something good can even come from this. You know, that can be so simplistic, can it? And we definitely are not couching it in simplicity today. We're not wrapping this in, in churchisms. <laughs> oh, brother. Oh, sister. Oh, praise the Lord anyway. 
Oh, let's just believe that God is good. Oh, let's just, we're not couching it in any of that. We're, we're stripping it back down and we're saying, come on. If you looked at that moment and, you, and as you look and gaze and meditate, I'm not talking about thinking for a moment about the cross. I'm talking about meditating, setting your gaze, setting your heart, setting your attention on the cross and not moving it. And as you do that, here's what becomes imperative in your thinking. You begin to think, this is crazy. This is amazing. How is this all happening at the same time? The worst thing that's ever happened on earth actually became the best thing that's ever happened on earth. If we were standing there, we would all agree, this is nuts. We would all cash in our chips. Even those of us with the most faith would have shoved them to the table and said, you know what, I just don't know what to believe anymore about God, about the plan, about all the promises. I don't know anymore. But now we look back in that moment and we go, oh my goodness, my best day was Jesus' worst day. My very best day, amen, was Jesus' very worst day. Why? Because God can make something amazing out of anything. And if he can take the blood and the brutality and the suffering and the shame of that day, and he can turn that into something phenomenal and amazing, then when I'm locked onto that cross, I know that in my circumstance, which right now I don't want any simple little, oh, let's just praise the Lord and oh, let's just believe for something good. No, we're stuck in the middle of the, of the grip of the darkness right now. But here's the thing, the cross is telling us right now that God can even make something good out of this. And I'm gonna cling to that. I'm gonna fly into that truth today. And that's gonna help me take one more step towards trusting God. And thank you for all the encouragement that you gave me. Thank you for all the prayers that you've prayed. They're helping me lock onto that reality called the cross of Christ. I think the fifth thing, and I love this, that the cross helps us do when we set our gaze on it in the middle of our storm is it allows us to know it's okay to be honest in our storm. You know, Jesus wasn't whistling on the cross. He wasn't high-fiving people on the way to Calvary. He was enduring seemingly immeasurable agony beyond what a human can bear. And in his own words, as we read them through the Spirit in Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. Do you know that there's a gear in life called enduring, and it's an okay gear? You do not have to be soaring every day. You do not have to be winning every day. You do not have to be a spiritual giant every single day. But when you look at the cross and you see Jesus, he's questioning, he's unsure, he's frustrated, he's suffering, he's crying out, he's in agony, and he's being honest about it, and he's being real about it. Yes, he still has time to save a man who has faith in him and to take him from a garbage dump into paradise in one moment, but all the while he's being human about what he's going through. And I think it's just God giving us permission today to say, if you're not feeling it, then don't fake it. 
And when your friend says, how are you doing today? You don't have to go, well, in my mind today, I'm cussing is what I'm doing. And I'm spitting out hatred and frustration and bitterness and anger. That's what I'm doing in my mind. And that's actually what I did out loud when I was alone. But now that you're here, oh, I'm doing wonderful. I'm just trusting God and believing God and his sovereign plans for my life and all the great things he's going to do through all the stuff I'm going through right now. Because, you know, he's wonderful. I'm just praising him because that's what we do. It's okay for you to say, I'm not doing good today. Not doing good today. Best hope today is I'm just enduring. Comma. It's okay to say what is real. And for some of you in your storm right now, your comeback is foggy. And your best hope is to fly into the truth of the cross. And to know that in that truth, it's okay for you to say, I'm not doing good today. Comma. Always add the comma. I'm not doing good today. Comma. People say, what's up with the comma? But God... What does that mean? I don't know. I don't really know right now. But it's the but God after the comma that's going to allow me to endure today. And, I, and check back with me tomorrow. I will be here tomorrow. I will be here tomorrow. Oh, come hell or high water, I will be here tomorrow. I will not die, but I will live and proclaim what the Lord has done. This will not be my last day. I will be here tomorrow. Check back with me tomorrow. And tomorrow maybe I'm not doing good, comma. Tomorrow, maybe I'm not doing good. Can you add the comma? Thank you. I'd like you to add the comma today. Oh, I believe in the comma, but I need you to add it. Can you add it? Thank you. But God. God isn't asking you to be a superhero in a comic book called The Comeback. He knows that you're breathing on thin ice right now. But he also knows that he's not going to let you drown. And he wants you to know that it's okay to be weak. As long as you're looking at something that reminds you that he is greater. I'm not doing too good today, comma. But God, check back with me later. Because I believe in this cross, in the middle of my wreckage. And I believe that God is with me. And I know that he loves me. And I know that he understands what I'm going through. And I know somehow, some way, even good can come from this. The sixth thing the cross tells us when we can't see or feel anything around us it reminds us that men may make decisions but God writes history 
you know, your husband left you, and I, I know that's very real, and it has dominoed into your life and affected your life and your children's lives, and it will in some way affect your life and your children's lives forever. That decision that he made that day was a, a crashing, dominoing choice. But I want to remind you today that your husband is not writing the history of your life and the lives of your children. God is writing the history of your life and the lives of your children. And so you need to understand today the pen is not in your ex's hand. The pen is in God's hand. Turn your gaze away from your ex and set it on the cross of Christ. Cancer is not writing your family's history. You say, well, Louie, it certainly changed our family. I believe that it did. But it is not writing the history of your family. This narrative opens with such a great proclamation. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. Congratulations. I'm sure they felt solid about it. So all the religious leaders now are cohorts with all the darkness now that's trying to shut this whole thing down. Can you imagine that every ballistic missile of hell was trained on that cross? This guy, Jesus, had the power to shut down demons, to shut down the darkness, to release the captives, to cause people to see again, to bring light into darkness, and all of the hell was on edge. And so they concocted a plan. They were gonna take him out. They got a team of religious people on their side. This is a perfect storm. We've got all the darkness and all the supposed light all making decisions on the same day. Can you imagine the arsenal of hell that was aimed at the cross? And even with all the firepower of the darkness, God said, come on, you are making decisions, but I am writing history today. I'm the one who's deciding what goes down today. And if it's true of that day, you say, well, that's good for Jesus, but it doesn't work for me. Really? If Jesus put his life in the hands of a God he believed was writing the story, then you can put your life today in the hands of a God that's also writing the story. Because your darkness, your pain, your blood shed, your suffering, your abandonment, your abuse, your betrayal, is not greater than his on that day. From noon until three o'clock, it was pitch black on planet earth it was in some way as God were doing two things he was saying the world doesn't deserve to see my son give his life and in some ways he was saying I understand what it's like to be in such a difficult place 
that you can't even see to take one step. But in the shroud and in the dark, thick, hopeless place, I am doing, I am doing, I am doing something still. A woman may have decided something, but God is writing your history. Your dad may have done something awful, but God is writing your story. Why do you know that? Because of this cross, I know that. And I'm going to fly into that truth. And lastly, you know, for a lot of us, it's been circumstances have crashed in. The phone rang. Um, a doctor walked in the door. A banker called. But for a lot of us in the room right now, it's way more personal than that. We did it. You did it. You made the decisions. You took the steps. It was your choice. And you knew it. You weighed up the cost and you still decided. And you brought down all the wreckage and you caused all the collateral and the aftermath. It's your aftermath. And there's no one else to blame but you. And you were stuck in that storm today and you're like, I can't see God. I don't know if he even knows if I exist anymore. I'm certain that he doesn't love me if he does. I don't know how to take another step. I don't know how this could be made into something good. I feel lost and alone and isolated in my own foolishness, my own sinfulness, my own choices. I don't think I'm ever going to reach back far enough to get back to God. And in the middle of that, I'm telling you, you got to get your eyes off what you did, off your sad story, off your own commentary, off of your failure, off of your guilt, your shame, and all the reruns of the enemy that he's cramming down your throat every single day. And you've got to lift your eyes up in grace to the cross of Christ. And you've got to see on that cross what you need to know more than anything else right now. And it is this. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how far you fell and how stupid your choices were. Jesus superseded them all in his amazing grace and kindness and mercy. And as far as the East is from the West in this moment today, that's how far the Father has taken our sins away from us. And it is possible for you to have peace with God right here and now. Because as Paul wrote it, he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Jesus, we both, both people who thought they had a chance and people who knew they never would, we both have access to the Father. 
by one spirit. 